You guys can be seated. Thanks for, uh, thanks for praying with me. If you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 today. 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're looking, continuing to look at the life of David and his kingship over, uh, over Israel. Today, as we look at it, we're going to look at two, two giants in the Old Testament colliding. One of those is the Ark of the Covenant, and one of those is David, the guy who killed Goliath. Uh, when I think of the Ark of the Covenant, I think of Harrison Ford, I think of Indiana Jones, I think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody else with me? I'm telling you, as a kid, Harrison Ford was in everything, and Raiders of the Lost Ark put a very vivid image in my mind about what would happen if you messed with the Ark of the Covenant. I went to Sunday school. I was born and raised in a Baptist church, and you know, the Ark of the Covenant, it's there. You do the whole temple thing, and, and you're not supposed to touch it, and crazy stuff happens when the Ark of the Covenant is around. And so when Steven Spielberg directs Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones is there in one of those final scenes where the Nazis who have been trying to get this Ark of the Covenant because they're like, if we can wield its power, we'll be unstoppable. And they finally get there and Indiana Jones is tied up in the back and the guy gets up there and he pops the top of the, the Ark of the Covenant. And everything in my mind as a kid, I thought if, if it could happen, this is what would happen. Do y'all remember this scene? Like the guy's face melts off. I'll never forget that, right? And Indiana Jones in the back tied to a pole saying, don't look, don't look. I'm like, you're right, you don't look. You don't mess with that thing, right? I just remember that. And, and, and I guess for me, because I had this background in in the church where I knew just enough about the Ark of the Covenant to be scared of it, to honor it, to think, man, something is up with this piece of furniture. And today, like I said, it's, it's legendary in its status when you think about it in Scripture. There are some crazy stories. Steven Spielberg didn't get that whole last scene and all of the stuff that goes with it off on his own. It has clearly been inspired by the, the biblical text because of the, the crazy stories that go along with the Ark of the Covenant. And so you've got the Ark, which is, which is legendary, and then you've got David who kills Goliath, and he's a legendary, larger than life, and those two figures collide in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it's a fascinating story. Before we get there, there's some of you who would say, Russell, good for you. I'm glad you grew up in church and had a little background on the Ark of the Covenant. I am not. I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. And so let me give you just a Cliff Notes version of the Ark of the Covenant just for a moment before we jump in here because I want you to know the story. We find the basics for it in the book of Exodus. Uh, these are going to be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. Exodus chapter 25. So the nation of Israel has just gotten out of captivity in Egypt, and God is going to give them laws and rules to abide by. And one of those is how you're going to worship me as God. How are you going to worship me in this new land? And he says, you're going to set up a temple, a tabernacle, and you're going to go there and worship. And part of this is going to be some furniture here. And this furniture is going to be very important, and part of that is the Ark of the Covenant. Let me read it to you. Verse 10, chapter 25. It says they are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. 
Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Also make gold molding all around it. So we got a box. It's not really big, nothing too crazy. It's going to be made out of wood, and then they're going to overlay it with gold. It's going to have gold all over it. And so you're thinking it, it may not be anything like impressive to look, look at in terms of size, but it's going to be, you know, obviously ornate. He then goes on and says, verse 12, cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Why do we need these rings? Verse 13, make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. So we got very little on the dimensions, very little on the wood and gold, all of that. We got a lot of information on some rings and some poles, and the poles are supposed to stay with it. Just make a mental note there. That's going to come back to us here in a moment. The reason for the poles is because this is how it would be transported. You're going to carry it this way. You might be thinking, that's a lot to do about this, this box. Let me read verse 16. It says, put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. The tablets of the testimony are the Ten Commandments. Remember, Moses is up there. God's going to give him the Ten Commandments. They're going to be on tablets of stone. If you want to know what's in the ark of the covenant, no need to pop the lid. If you ever come across it, don't pop the lid, right? I'll tell you what's in it. What's in it is the Ten Commandments. This is just for free. There's a jar of manna. That's in it. And then there's the uh, rod of Aaron. And so those are the only three things in the ark. We say, why is this so important? Let's keep reading. Verse 21. He says, set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Now, the mercy seat is the top, and he's basically calling the rest of the chapter. I didn't have time to read it. It's these two angel-like images. They're cherub, and their wings are going to touch at the top. And where their wings touch, it's called the the mercy seat. And so you're going to put this on top of the ark. And he says, this is what's going to happen. Verse 22, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. God is saying this piece of furniture is incredibly important because I'm going to show up. And when I show up, I'm not going to show up just anywhere. I'm going to show up there. And where this ark is supposed to be is in one spot. It's in the Holy of Holies. It's in this inner place in the tabernacle. This is no willy-nilly box. This isn't a coffee table you prop your feet on. This is where I am going to show up. Really important. Let me show you some pictures. Some of you are like, man, let me, let me get a picture or two. That'd be helpful. This would be, you know, obviously an artist rendition. We hadn't found this thing. Most people think we're never going to find it. That's what it looks like. For those of you who'd like to remember Indiana Jones, let me give you that picture. There it is. Brings back some childhood memories, right? There he is pulling it out. The reason why this, this mercy seat is so important, so It's really hard for us to understand this, but God is holy. God is holy. 
God doesn't lie. God doesn't cheat. God doesn't steal. God doesn't think bad thoughts. He doesn't do bad things. He doesn't gossip. He is pure. He is holy. He is the creator. He is all powerful. He is glorious. The list goes on. I don't have time to give you all his characteristics and attributes, but he is perfect. Now, here's the reality. Ever since Adam and Eve took from that tree that God said not to, we're all sinners. We all lie, cheat, and steal. We all disobey God. We all do it. And that means we are separated from God. So God knows that we're separated from him. God knows that we cannot access this holy God because of this sin in our lives. So God said, you know what? Let me make a way for you. And this is what I'm going to do. In the Old Testament, I'm going to give you this tabernacle, and I'm going to give you this Ark of the Covenant, and I am going to speak to the people of Israel through a mediator, and that mediator's name up front is Moses. If I want to talk to you, I'm going to talk to Moses, and Moses, you can disseminate that information. You want to talk to me, you talk to me here, and that'll go to God. But there was a mediator between holy God and sinful people. After Moses died, there was a priesthood, and the priest would be the ones who would mediate on behalf of God and man. Now, let me be really clear here. I am not a priest. I am not a priest. I do not mediate on your behalf. I am here as a shepherd, as a pastor. I'm here to love you. I need to teach God's word to you. I want to make sure you take your next step spiritually. But listen, I got no red phone in the office over there. Like my prayers don't get any, any, any quicker than yours do. All I am is to help you take your next step. I don't have to mediate for you. And you say, well, who mediates for me? It's a great question. Jesus Christ does. He does. So God knows that the whole priesthood, the, the whole priesthood thing, that at the end of the day, it falls short because the people won't obey. So God says, I'm going to send my perfect son, Jesus Christ. And he's going to live, and he is going to die, and he's going to be raised again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you and I. He mediates on our behalf. We can come boldly before the throne of God. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's where we are now. So thank goodness, no more ark, no more priesthood. Jesus Christ is our perfect priest. But let's rewind back. If there's no Jesus and I got to have a place to meet God, then this box is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. You might say, well, that still doesn't answer the question, Russell, of like the, the faces melting off in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, I get it, but what, what about that? So let me give you a few stories. Uh, remember, the people of Egypt or the people of Israel are leaving Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And Moses and the 10 plagues, and they cross the Red Sea, and they finally get to this promised land that's going to be given to them. And in order to get there, they got to cross the Jordan River, another water crossing. God tells them this. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get the priest, and I want them to hold the Ark of the Covenant with those poles exactly the way I told them to. And this is what they're going to do. When they get into the water of the Jordan, the water's flowing. When they get in that water, the Bible says, soon as the priest water, who their feet hit the ground, the guys who were holding the Ark, the water stopped flowing, and it became a dam to them on one side, and they were able to walk across on dry ground. All because the the Levites who were carrying the ark stepped in that water. God's presence was there, and he created a miracle. That's not bad, is it? 
It's still not faces melting off quite yet, but that's what we got. It's mir- that's a miracle. Second one, they get across the Jordan and they get to a place called Jericho. And Jericho is a fortified city. It's a place with high walls. And so what are they going to do? God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get those priests. I want you to get the poles. And I want you to get the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to walk around the city of Jericho seven days. And you're going to take that ark and you're going to ark and march around it. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. And after that, guess what happened? The walls came down. It's a story we know well and all because God's presence was there. And what represented God's presence? The ark of the covenant. Now, at this point, people are thinking, we got something special here. We got a magic box and we can do whatever we want with this magic box. So Israel's at battle one day with the Philistines and it's not looking so good for them. And they say, go get the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to start treating it like it's a rabbit's foot, a talisman, a rally hat. Let's get the Ark and we are for sure going to win. But God looks at him and says, listen, it represents my presence. Just because you take it out there, just because you want to use me to your ends doesn't mean I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. So they run it out there acting like we're supposed to win now because the Ark of the Covenant showed up. They don't win. They get, they get beat. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. They steal it. And the Philistines bring it home and they put it in their little warehouse with all the other stuff that they've stolen from people. And while it was sitting there overnight, the Philistines worshipped a big god called Dagon. And they had a massive, massive statue of him. And while, they were, while that ark was in there overnight, Dagon laid flat on its face. Fascinating. Fascinating story. 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, for those of you who want to read it. The next morning, they're like, ah, that was a coincidence. They set Dagon back up. The next morning, they get there, and guess what? Dagon's back on his face, except his hands are cut off. What? What? I'm getting closer to faces melting off, right? Right? Not only that, but watch this. The Philistines were covered in tumors, boils, sores. And the Philistines were like, we're out. Get the box and get it out of here. Get the ark out. We don't want it here anymore. So they build a cart. They build a cart. Just remember that. And they put some ox in front of it. And they put the ark on the cart. And they say, wherever you boys want to go is fine with us. Just don't circle back and come to us. So it goes to Israel, and the people in Israel were so happy to get the Ark of the Covenant back. And they pull it off, and they take the cart that the Philistines had made, and they chop it up into firewood, and they do a big sacrifice, a burnt offering, and they sacrifice the ox that were carrying it. And at that point, you think, this is going to be great, except for the fact that in Beth Shemesh, some guys got really comfortable with the Ark. And after they pulled it off, they were like, you know, This is the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe we ought to look inside. Maybe we should pop the top on this rascal and see what we got. And it doesn't go well. Let me read it to you. The story is found in in 1 Samuel. In chapter 6, he says this. Verse 19, God struck down the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the Ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men out of 50,000 men. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. It stopped a river. The walls came down. And some fellows popped the top and died, 70 of them. So now all of a sudden we're thinking something is going on with this box. 
you might look at that and say, wow, that seems way over the top for God. 70 guys to die? That's a little over the top here. No, it's really not. Let me tell you why. In in Numbers chapter 4, it's going to be on the screen. Look at what Numbers chapter 4 says. Again, part of the law. God makes it clear. Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and all their equipment whenever the camp is to move on. And the Kohathites will come and carry them, but they will not touch the holy objects or they will, they will die. They got the warning. God told them, you're going to do it my way. You're going to do it the right way. And you are going to honor my presence. You are going to honor this, this, this piece of furniture that represents my holiness and my presence with you. And you are going to do it correctly. So what happened to the ark after that? Great question. This is what happens. Everybody gets scared of it, but there's a guy named Abinadab, and Abinadab says, I'll take it. I'll take it. So it stays at Abinadab's house. Now, Saul is the first king of Israel, and the Bible says Saul never wanted anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant, never inquired about it. He was king for about 20 to 25 years. That means at least 25 years the Ark of the Covenant was not in its proper place. It was not in Jerusalem. It was not where it should have been. It's sitting at Abinadab's house, just sitting there. This thing represents the presence of God. This thing represents his holiness. This represents his power. And he's sitting back. All these, Saul and all of his leaders are just going to let it sit in a house. And I think it's because they're a little gun shy, a little scared. So that leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because David says, let's go get the ark. Let's go get it. We want to bring it home. Listen, I'm the king, but I'm no dummy. The nation of Israel is not a monarchy. It is a theocracy. And God is the one who rules this thing. So let's get the box that represents his presence and put it back in Jerusalem. And that's where we start reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Sorry for the long introduction. I just wanted to make sure we had all our characters in place before we get there. You ready? Let's take a look. Verse 1. David again assembled all the choice men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark is called by the name, the name of Yahweh of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So David says, we're going to go get the ark. I'm going to send 30,000 folks to go get it. We're going to march right over there. It's probably about a 12-mile journey. We're going to go get it. Now, I love what the narrator of Samuel does here. You see what he does there in verse 2? The ark is called by the name, the name of Yahweh of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. You would think that people would be so familiar with the ark of the covenant that you wouldn't have to say all of that. But because we hadn't seen it in so long, the narrator wants to make sure this isn't just any piece of furniture. It is where God dwells. His presence is there. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. And brought it with the ark of God from Abinadad's house that was on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the cart. Now, if you're just reading this, now with everything we've talked about, is anything jumping off the page at you? How should this have been carried? 
Remember those poles and rings that we spent so much time talking about in Exodus? And I could show it to you in Leviticus. I could show it to you in Deuteronomy. But I just showed you the one there. You think for a minute when you show up and there's the Ark of the Covenant with rings and gold poles, like maybe you should do what? Pick it up correctly. But that's not what he does. He says they build a cart. And we're going to set it on the cart instead of doing this the right way. Now, when I look at that, it seems like David's being very, very casual here. You might think, well, this doesn't seem so bad, but it seems like he's being pretty casual. Let me tell you why I think he's being casual. Um, have, have any of you ever watched like time period movies or TV shows and watched when kings get carried through on a parade long before there were motor vehicles? You know how they get carried through? It's called a litter. We don't use that term a lot, but a litter is a chair, sometimes a covered chair, with poles on both sides. And guess who's carrying it? Some servants. Why do they do that? Because royalty sits on a litter. Stuff sits on a cart. And how should the Ark of the Covenant have been carried? It should have been carried like, a, like royalty, like a king. We're getting casual here. We're just going to put it on a cart. Put stuff. Now, it was a new cart, but it's not the right way. And it seems okay because it says twice in the passage that Abinadab's house was on a hill. So that means this is going to be tricky. It's 12 miles. I mean, come on. Let's work smarter, not harder. Let's put it on a cart, and it'll be easy, and we don't have to do the whole 12-mile thing by foot. Then we got Abinadab's son. Abinadab's not a Levite. Abinadab's sons aren't Levites. So now we got all these other people who are walking in front of it. They shouldn't have been there. Then it says this in verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments and lyres and harps and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. There was this real worship. I mean, it says he was doing this before the Lord. I believe David had every intention it was great intentions. He meant well. He is trying to get the ark from the wrong place to the right place. He's just doing it the wrong way. Verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Now, if I pause there, if you'll remember the stuff I've already read, what are you not supposed to do? You're not supposed to touch it. I've already read it. Numbers, right? We already know the story from the guys at Beth Shemesh. We already know what happened to the Philistines. It's not like this is out of nowhere. Don't touch the ark. Don't touch it. And he does. Because the oxen had stumbled. And at this point, you're like, he had every good intention. Verse 7, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. And David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. And David feared the Lord that day. What a crazy passage, isn't it? Here's David trying to do the right thing. He's, he's trying to do exactly what he thought God would want him to do. That's what the wise men of the time said. Get the ark and bring it home. But he doesn't do it. And the reason why he doesn't do it right, and the reason why he doesn't do it right is because he's just casual. He's just casual with it. When I say the word casual, this is what I mean. Indifferent, 
lackadaisical lack of intention. He doesn't study up. He doesn't figure out what I'm supposed to do. He's just lackadaisical, indifferent. There's a leadership guru. I can't, I can't remember exactly who this phrase is attributed to. A lot of leadership guys say it, so I'm just going to say it to you and just know it's not my own. He says this. Being casual leads to casualties. Being casual leads to casualties. In the business world, that makes a ton of sense because when I'm casual with sales, then that means there will be casualties. Or if I'm casual in leadership, then there will be casualties. Um, When I think about it in terms of business or especially uh, things like what my dad did for 30 years, he was a driver. He drove trains for Union Pacific Railroads, and, and for 30 years he had to take a safety test four times a year. Why? Because he's working around thousands of tons of metal and engine, and the last thing you want to do is get real comfortable around a train engine or else you're going to what? You're going to lose your life. Because being casual leads to casualties. And I remember my dad would just say, hey, i got to study for my test. Because if I don't pass this safety exam, then they're not going to let me be an engineer anymore. I mean, that's what you have to do because you can't get casual with it. Or I guarantee you the guys that are working on a Michelin line and all the OSHA stuff and some of that stuff we roll our eyes about. But I guarantee you the reason for that is because if you get casual around a piece of equipment that puts together a massive tire, it's not just going to take a finger or an arm. It's going to take you. We don't want to get casual because casual leads to what? Casualties. I got a son right now. My oldest son, Milton, he's in Texas. He's in Abilene, Texas. My father-in-law is a farmer, and he's got tractors and gear. And I worked with Ken for, uh, through college and through seminary to make a little extra money. And I got Milton there. He's going to be there all June working on a tractor. I'm so happy for him. Like He's, he's going to learn some stuff on the farm that you're never going to learn anywhere else, right? And I got him in the car, and we're headed to the Atlanta airport right after school let out. And I'm talking to him, and we're having a great conversation. And it finally gets to the tractor and a swather and a baler and all that stuff. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, buddy, I want you to learn all about it, but don't get casual. Because I've shaken many a farmer's hand missing fingers. I've, I've heard lots of stories where the, you stuck your hand in, and the stripper, the cotton stripper took it back. I mean, like, you got to be careful. Don't grow casual with it. Don't just sit back and think you can do whatever because it is not safe. I can talk about this in a hundred different ways. As a teacher, I had to watch safety videos about bloodborne pathogens. There's safety videos on how to do a, a boat safety and gun safety. Why? Because if you get casual with it, it will bring a casualty. If we get casual with God, Our relationship with him is the casualty. And you might sit back and say, thank goodness God doesn't strike anyone dead anymore. Well, listen, there's two people in the New Testament named Ananias and Sapphira, and they got the wrong end on that one. They got struck dead because they lied. I'm I'm just going to tell you right now, I I don't really want to flirt with it. First John, it talks about a sin unto death. I don't, what is that? Does that mean I could sin and sin and sin and die? And we just casual. Just casual with God's holiness, casual with sin, casual like it's not going to bring anything. But I love that phrase. When we're casual, it leads to casualties. And I think that doesn't just apply to our relationship with God. If we're casual, lack, uh, lackadaisical, indifferent, 
lack intent, if we're like that with our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors, it's going to be casualties. The wages of sin is it's death. That's a casualty. So I'm looking at this, and I see this, this casualty of, of David, and, and Uzzah dies. And at first, David's angry. And then he, he, he relents, and he's going to go back and get the ark after a second try. But it leads me to ask a few questions. And the question is this, because I'm wrestling with the text, and like I don't want to be irreverent. I don't want to be lackadaisical. I don't want to be casual with my relationship with God. So I'm just going to ask this. I, I had to ask myself this. How do I know if I'm getting casual with my relationship with God? How do you know? How do you know if you're being indifferent or lackadaisical with it? Let me show you a few things from the text that I think we can point out and and learn. I'm going to go over here back to verse 3 where it says, The ark, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house. That new cart to me is really important. I think there are two points to be made from it. And the first one is this. David is doing the right thing, but he's doing it the wrong way. And I know when I'm getting casual with God is because the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. So it doesn't matter how I do something, just as long as I did it. Let me give you an example. You're going to be shocked. I try to read my Bible every day. There are some times that I read my Bible, and when I'm done, I say, check, did that today, and close it up. Now, did I take care of the ends? Well, what about the means? Did I do it the way I should have done it? Did I take my time with it? Did I ask some questions? Did I try to learn? Was I open or was I just check, got it done? I wonder if we do that with worship. I'm here, attended church, check. Went to small group, check, served, check. Waved to my neighbor, check. Put a little money in the box, check. And at that point, if all I'm doing is just trying to check mark this rascal off and not really worried about how I do it, then maybe we need to wonder, man, am I being casual? Am I just thinking a little money in the box and, and I, I'm a little nice to people and I read my Bible three times this week, check, 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 then maybe we need to think I might be a little too casual. Need to put some reverence back into that, intentionality back into it. Second thing I think the cart tells us. Now, he was on a hill, and he was trying to make it easy. And I'll give David credit for that. But sometimes I think we can find out if we're casual with God if we only focus on it when it's convenient. When it's convenient. Like, you know what? It, nothing else to do. Church. Convenient. Nothing else to do. I'll, I'll read my Bible. Nothing else to do. Let's go to small group. It's just convenient. But when it's not convenient, it's too hard. You say, where do you see convenience in the new cart? Remember what happened? He got mad. David got mad. Named the place. Renamed the place. Outburst against Uzzah. Look at what he says next. Verse 9. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Look at verse 10. So he was not willing to move it. Too hard. It's going to be inconvenient. 
nah, just leave it there. I'll do it another time, maybe. I just wonder what our, if our relationship with God is just built on convenience or is it based on commitment? It's based on commitment. Last thing I'm going to share with you. Third way to, to test and see if I'm being casual. Look at verse 9. Cannot believe David said this. Right after Uzzah dies, David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? You? I thought the ark was God's presence for the nation of Israel, not your trophy or political pawn to get people to cheer for you. What? You? I just wonder if sometimes we're casual with our relationship with God and, and we spend all of our time talking about, I want it to go smooth for me. Me, me, me. Better for me, easier for me, smooth for me, smooth for my kids, smooth for my, smooth for me. Instead of, man, I just hit a roadblock here. It's my own doing. I should have known better. Let's go back and tackle this the right way. Now we just cry out and say, how am I ever going to get it to come to me? I bet David wishes he had that one back. Maybe we're just a little too casual. Russ's story is, is David's going to put it on a cart, and we're going to find out David knows exactly how to do it. There's a parallel passage, so kings and chronicles sometimes line up. I'm going to read a little bit out of Chronicles to you because I want you to hear how the chronicler calls this. He says this in chapter 15. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. He says this. For the Lord, this is David speaking, for the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. Man, I blew it. I didn't have the Levites with us. I had 30,000 great men, but I didn't have the Levites. Why are the Levites important? Because they're the ones who are supposed to carry it. He goes, I didn't have you with us the first time, for we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. I was casual. I was lackadaisical. I wasn't intentional, but I'm going to be this time. Verse 14, so the priest and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And then the Levites carried the ark of God the way Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord on the shoulders with the poles. <laughs> Love it. He does it right the second time. And not only does it right the second time, after they take six steps, 2 Samuel says that they, they uh, made a sacrifice. And most commentators would say they did that every six steps until they got it home. Stopped, offer a sacrifice, and say, you are holy. We blew it the first time. We're going to do it right the second time. We don't want to be casual. It leads me to another question because some of us could sit back and say, thank goodness we have the New Testament and we don't have Ark of the Covenants anymore and all that crazy furniture and all these rules to keep. And you're right. And there is so much blessing in that. But I want to be clear about something. The reason why God gave all of those instructions in Exodus and Leviticus and a temple and an Ark of the Covenant is because God is spiritual, he is immaterial, and we are physical, and we are material, and we need something to have a handle on to know who he is. And you'd say, well, what would that be for us in the New Testament? It would be things like this bread and juice down here. 
is this bread and juice isn't just the cheap grape juice in a plastic cup and, and bad bread. What does it represent? Just hold on that one. What's it represent? And why did God give this to us? So that we would remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to say, I don't think we ought to come down here lackadaisical, unintentional, casual, to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Paul would say the same thing, that we need to be really careful and examine ourselves because this represents something far greater than the material. Or what about when I put a big tub out here and people get in this water and they answer two questions and they say, yes, I put my faith and trust in Jesus and yes, I want to follow him for the rest of my life. And we take them and put them in that water and bring them back out and they're wringing wet and all of you clap your hands. But what's, what is happening there? Nothing magical in the water, but it represents new life, doesn't it? And do you think we ought to get in that water and look at this and just play with it like, eh? Something special. The opportunity for you here in a minute to sing with your mouth to the God of creation that he would want to be in relationship with you. Give you one more. I'll be done after this one. Not two more, sorry. <laughs> You're going to shake some people's hands walking out of here. And every time you shake someone's hand that's a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, that is a physical reminder of the body of Christ, that we are the body. Last one. I don't know why I would leave it out. It's my favorite. What amazing physical handle that is his word. What amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? Mine's a little tattered and messed up, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is the word of God. Crazy to think about, isn't it? We don't have an Ark of the Covenant, but we got a lot of good stuff too. And when we walk in here, we got a lot to be thankful for and a lot to worship God for. And we don't want to be casual. We want to be intentional. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, um, Man, if I'm honest, most times it's just really easy to check boxes and not really think about what all we're doing and how it represents way more than just the physical. That it is an amazing privilege you give us. You give us songs, you give us your word, you give us the bread and juice, you give us baptism, you give us community, you give us the church so that all of these things represent your goodness and your grace, our relationship to you. Father, I confess when I'm casual, I just, just easy to check boxes. Father, I pray for the next few minutes as we sing that maybe we would ask ourselves, is this, is this casual or am I committed? my end. We're never going to just drift towards you. We're going to have to be intentional to move towards you. And I don't want to drift. 
So Lord, thank you for your holiness, even though it is, it is awesome and, and inspires fear. And thank you for your grace that you would draw us in through your son, Jesus Christ, that you desire to have relationship with us. Much to be thankful for today, Lord. Thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.